We are back in the book of Revelation, chapter 21. Revelation 21, we've been uh, kind of looking at the bookends of the Bible. We started in the, the year with Genesis 1 to 3. Now we're into Genesis 19 to 22. We're in chapter 21, the first 14 verses. We're seeing here this picture of what is to come, uh, sort of meant to fill us with hope, uh, to keep us going. Uh, we looked last week at the, the sort of uh, beginning of the end. Uh, the, how everything was, I'm sorry, the end of the beginning last week, uh, how this world sort of comes to its close with a final battle and so forth. Well, this week, chapter 21, we're going to look at the end of the beginning, or the beginning of the end, I'm getting all mixed up, the beginning of the end, the beginning of the eternal end. What happens next after this world comes to a close? Uh, we're going to look at a little bit of what heaven is like. When I say heaven, again, I'm not talking about just the disembodied state we go to be with Jesus but what's to come and there's a lot of questions that people have about heaven uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding um, a lot of ideas that go around there about heaven uh, many of them don't come from the Bible they come from the Greek world or maybe even the pagan world and just concepts about heaven uh, what does the Bible actually tell us well, a lot of it is a mystery to be honest uh, what will look like we don't know what our bodies will be like. Will they be made up of cells and carbons and all that? And will there be sports in heaven? I mean, there's lots of questions we may have. The Bible only gives us sort of glimpses, symbols, visions of what is to come. However, there is much we do know about what's to come. We know that it will be a world without sin. Can you imagine that? <laughs> without suffering and sickness. A world in which we will experience God's eternal glory. His weight, his worth, his value. We're given enough here in the Bible to whet our appetite. Uh, to get us excited so that we will stand with Jesus now into the end. Look with me at Genesis, uh, Revelation 21, 1 through 14. Revelation 21, 1 through 14. We'll have it up on the screen or if you'd like to open your Bible, you're certainly welcome to do that. So we're going to cover a good chunk of 21, but not the whole chapter. There's a lot more to come. 22 is the last chapter of the Bible. So we're nearing the very end of Scripture here. But we read this in 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, 
As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, gate, on the east three gates, and on the north, three gates. On the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Stand with Jesus now, and eternal glory awaits. There's an outline in your bulletin. Uh, if you want to take some notes or see where we're going, or you just like to uh, kind of get a sense of, of this passage, take a look. Uh, but we're going to jump into the first point here. Uh, stand with Jesus, and all pain will become past. <laughs> stand with Jesus, and all pain will become past, verses 1 through 4. He begins by describing what's to come uh, and what won't be there. Uh, he says here there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. The heavens, again, probably refers to the firmament here or the dwelling place of God. It's used both ways in Scripture. And this word new, kainos, uh, doesn't usually mean new, meaning something that wasn't before, but renewed. Uh, new in terms of quality. Uh, it's new. It's better than what came before it. Uh, he describes here a new heavens and a new earth. Something has been renewed. The earth is going to be different than it was before. Better is the idea than it was before. Wiped away. Um, all, all that is evil will be wiped away from it. And he describes here, and maybe this caught your attention, there will be no sea. Um, why does he mention there's no sea? I mean, some of you guys love the ocean. Anyone love the ocean? I love the ocean. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of hands went up. Um, well, the sea, uh, throughout the book of Revelation... Uh, is a place of chaos. It's where the beast arises. It's a place of evil. It's unpredictable. In fact, uh, I went to the, the uh, beach this morning for a walk with my dog, and you could just see the, the sort of the waves moving, and you got the firm, terra firma, that's the beach, and you look at the waves, and you don't even know what's in there and what comes out of there, and it's, just, it's a kind of a mystery, isn't it? In fact, I had a little strange encounter. Uh, watch this video as I was walking with my dog. I, I saw a strange creature come out of the ocean. So it, it's, it's kind of strange coming out of an ocean. It's not that strange, but do we have it? All right, Ted. Let's leave that beaver alone. <laughs> little beaver going for a morning swim on 7 o'clock in the morning. A little rat terrier trying to figure out what he is and what he's up to. Everybody got it. It's a beaver. I wasn't expecting to see a beaver come out of the ocean. That's kind of strange, isn't it? Uh, but that's to say that the, the sea in the book of Revelation is a symbol of chaos and evil and mystery. Now, does that mean that there will literally be no sea in heaven in eternity? I don't think that's the point. Maybe there's no sea. I don't know. Uh, but I don't think that's the point of what he's saying here. He's saying that chaos 
is removed. He then sees a holy city, New Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem, of course, was the capital city of Israel. Uh, it's where the temple was. It's called the holy city. Uh, and then a bride. And we've talked about this from chapter 19, this great wedding uh, that's coming up here. The bride refers to the church, and the bride's husband refers to Christ. They're united in commitment and love for all eternity, in union, never to be separated again. He says here, the dwelling of God is with man. Yes, in one sense, his spirit already dwells with us, but there is a unity that is coming that is unlike anything we can experience in this world. We will be united to him forever. And then, of course, look towards the end, verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. There will be no mourning, crying, pain, for those are part of the former world, part of the old world. They're a result of the fall, and they have nothing to do with what is to come. Think about that. He's saying here that pain, to summarize all that, pain is temporary. I used to have a t-shirt when I did wrestling back in uh, eighth grade. It said, pain is temporary, pride is forever. I used to wear that all the time. What he's saying here is pain is temporary, but glory is forever what would a world be like without pain? It's almost hard for us to get our minds around it, right? Uh, we think about pain as, as necessary. A little baby, you know, experiences pain. So what does the baby do? It cries. It's hunger, hungry or it's lonely or it needs some attention or whatever. And we say, that's a good thing, right? I mean, it, it's, it's a way of, it's your body's way of letting us know uh, that something is wrong. So how will we live without that? I don't know. There must be other means of letting us know when something is wrong or something is off. Pain isn't the only way. But when you think about our world, there's more than enough pain. In fact, it goes well beyond simply indicators of something wrong. There is an incredible amount of suffering in our world. If you look throughout history, friends, the amount of suffering in this world is almost unthinkable. And God doesn't dole it out equally. I know that from our own congregation. It doesn't take long to be a pastor to realize some people experience a lot more suffering than others. And you ask why. Why does one person go through so much and another not so much? And I don't know. We don't have answers to these things. See, we have it backwards. We think that, that pain is the norm. That this world is the normal. This is the way it's supposed to be. And that a world without pain is almost unthinkable to us. That's exactly backwards. According to the Bible, our world is broke. This is not the way it's supposed to be. This level of incredible amount of suffering and pain is not the norm. But the day will come when he will wipe away every tear. He'll wipe away that deep sense of absence that you may feel of the loss of loved ones. He will wipe away that sting you feel of betrayal from someone you love. He'll wipe away the sting of a broken heart. Pain is temporary, but glory is forever. Friends, the, the calling here, of course, is to keep hoping in heaven. Keep our eyes there. To remember that pain is part of this world. So understand that it is part of this world. That this day he's describing has not come yet. Uh, there's no promise that we as Christians will live without pain now. In fact, the prosperity gospel, this idea that if you have enough faith, you won't suffer, you won't get sick and all that, that is a lie. I think that is a lie that comes straight from the pit of hell. <laughs> there is no promise that we live without pain in this world. It's part of this world, but our hope is that it's coming 
to an end. Let every type of pain we feel, friends, be a reminder of this very thing. Every cold, every flu, every broken bone. Let every funeral that we attend, every conflict we find ourselves in, every stinging, unfair criticism we receive from someone, every difficulty you face in your local church, let it be a reminder that this day is going to eventually come. In fact, God is good enough to take pain in this world and use it in a way in which it draws us closer to himself. Uh, Sometimes we we need that in this world to to get our attention. (laughs) C.S. Lewis called it God's megaphone. (laughs) It's his way of certainly getting our attention. He said this, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God uses pain, friends, in in this world to sanctify us, to draw us closer to him and to get our hope away from here and towards eternity. Keep hoping in heaven. Allow pain to draw you closer to God. And then, friends, I would say taste heaven now. (laughs) We don't get the full thing, but we can taste it now. Uh, God has a way of removing pain, uh, removing bitterness, uh, removing uh, the, the feelings of betrayal. Uh, he gives us a freedom in this life and a peace and a healing. It's not full. It's not complete. And it's not based on your level of faith. But there is truly peace available for those in Christ. We get a little taste, a little glimmer of heaven. Five through eight, stand with Jesus. Stand with Jesus and he will renew everything. <laughs> He'll renew everything. Look at verses five through eight. God says, God makes everything new. He reminds us here that these words are are trustworthy and true. Uh, God promises us that this is true. And for 2,000 years, his church has held to these words, believing them to be true. Uh, This is not meant to be a sort of placebo. (laughs) You know, this is not meant to sort of make make you more comfortable facing death in this In reality, there's nothing after it. No, God's saying, I promise this is reality. This is what is to come for all those who trust in me. It isn't a vain hope. He mentions to all those who are thirsty, he gives them from the spring of the water of life freely. I think he's talking about here spiritual satisfaction, full and complete forever. He describes it as our heritage This is what we have to await as sons and daughters of God. And then he just begins to describe who won't be there. We looked a little bit at this last week, but he gives this list of sinners, and this is a terrifying list in many ways. Uh, But what he's describing here, I think, is unrepentant, perpetual sin, which really is simply the mark, the sign of someone who does not know God, Uh, someone who does not trust in Christ, lives in perpetual and unrepentant sin. And he describes their end as in the lake of fire, the second death, a picture, Revelation's most common picture, I think, of hell. What is hell? It's a place without God's love. It's a place away from his mercy and his grace. It's a place where God brings about final justice. I know we're, we're uncomfortable sometimes talking about that, but justice is a good thing. In fact, it's a necessary thing for a good God. One theologian, Miroslav Volf, said, Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel 
against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of this world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being loving. God is wrathful because he is loving. If you look at sin and its brokenness and injustice, something needs to be done about it, and God does it in the end. That's why we need the cross. As H. Richard Niebuhr famously said, our world wants to believe in a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. (laughs) But that's not the God we believe. We believe in a God who brings justice, and he brings that justice for us on his son so that we can be in full reconciled relationship with himself. But notice, everything is made new. (laughs) Everything is made new. I don't know about you, I like new things. Uh, I think most of us like new things. Uh, I like new cars. My dream car is a, that's not not a new car. Uh, My dream car is a 2019 Aston Martin. So if anyone here has really deep pockets, no, I'm just kidding. No, you don't, you don't get a tax write-off for that. It doesn't work. Uh, but that would, that would be my dream car. I like new houses. I like, I like new church buildings, right? That's, those are great. But even better than that, I think, there is something rich about renewed things. Uh, something that's not just new, but renewed. Something that's old that has been restored, has been fixed up and brought new. For example, as you can see the picture now, 1960s Ford Mustang. There's something beautiful about a car that's been around for 50 years and has been renewed. Or an antique house that has been restored. Um, For example, this house. Anyone know what that is? I'm curious. I'd be surprised if you did. That's Mark Twain's house in Hartford, Connecticut, by the way. So uh, we got to visit there a a couple years ago. Uh, Mark Twain is is a great guy. Here's a quote from Mark Twain has nothing to do with the sermon, just so you know, okay? So Mark Twain said, it is better to keep your mouth closed and let people think you are a fool than to open it and remove all doubt. That's uh, Mark Twain. So yeah, nothing to do with what I'm talking about uh, today here. But renewed things are even better than new things. The Garden of Eden, when we were in Genesis 1 to 3, the Garden of Eden was new. Everything was fresh. But the new heavens and the new earth is even better. Because it isn't just something new, it's something renewed. It takes all that is good about this world and keeps it and all that is broken and evil about this world and removes it. Friends, God makes all things new, including us. We're not just created anew for a new heavens and new earth. God takes what is broken, like a broken down old car from the 60s or a broken down old Victorian house, and he restores us and makes us new and prepares us for eternity. Let's encourage you, hope in what is to come. Hope in what is to come. Embrace what is good about this world. Embrace what's good about this world. Music, art, morality, nature, love, friendship. What is good about this world will last forever. Like we see this here in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. We're told this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. (laughs) Because all that is good comes from God. I would say, embrace what's good about this world, but turn away from what's evil. Turn away from what's evil. Get Get a head start on heaven, in a sense, friends. Live for God now. Recognize that what is evil is not going to last and the time, the time to turn from it is now instead as we prepare for heaven and for eternity. Embrace what's good, turn from what's evil, be patient with what's broken. 
And what's broken? People. People are broken. Be patient with people. We're not there yet. Every one of us. And what is a church? A church is filled with broken people. Uh, Sometimes people say, I went to that church. Somebody said something bad to me. I'm never coming back. Well, guess what? (laughs) Every church is broken. It's filled with broken people. Be patient with what's broken. Be patient with politics. Uh, The day will come in which we will live in a monarchy. (laughs) There'll be one king who is good over all. But nothing is going to be perfect in this world. God will fix it. And never lose hope. Friends, it will get better. Uh, That's one thing we can say as Christians, always. No matter what you see about the world, some of us are more optimistic, some of us may be more pessimistic. No matter what you say, you can say this as a Christian, it will get better. (laughs) There is no room for despair, there's no room for hopelessness or pessimism ultimately because we have the hope of heaven which brings us a real true joy in the present. We stand with Jesus now and await all that will be renewed. And thirdly, Stand with Jesus now and enter the eternal city. Stand with Jesus now and enter the eternal city, 9 through 14. Next he sees the new Jerusalem. So one of the seven angels from a previous time in the book of Revelation that we did not cover in this sermon series anyway, uh, says, come and you will see something. Uh, You will see uh, the bride. So he hears, come and see the bride. The bride, of course, refers to the church, refers to Christians. Uh, Or even, we could say, all faithful believers, faithful Israel, Jews and Gentile Christians for all ages, refers to all God's people. He says, come and see it, and then what does he show him? He doesn't show him a bride. He shows him something different. He shows them a city. (laughs) And really what happens in Revelation, this happens from time to time, uh, the two are the same. He says, come see the lion of the tribe of Judah, and then he shows him a lamb who was slain. And the point of it, the point of uh, the vision, is to say these two things are one and the same. The lion of the tribe of Judah is the Lamb of God. The bride of Christ is this great city, the holy new Jerusalem. He comes down from heaven. Uh, it carries in it the glory of God. As I said, the word glory means weight, value, honor. <laughs> it, the full presence of God dwells within this city. Uh, he describes it like a rare jewel like jasper or like crystal. That's because when you think about this world, what's the most valuable thing? What radiates in this world like nothing else? Uh, Jewels, right? Um, When you think about big, beautiful jewels, um, I was thinking about in the movie Titanic, right? There's the the blue diamond. Uh, Did you know that's fictional? I had to look that up. I didn't know if that really, really existed, the the heart of the ocean. Remember that beautiful jewel that they're searching for the whole movie? And they sort of drop it into the, she drops it into the ocean and it sinks out of sight, never to be seen again. Uh, well, that's not a real jewel. So it's good to kind of know that. But there are some big, beautiful jewels in this world. Uh, here are the top five. Just, 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 just was curious about this. The first one is called the uh, Lien Comble Diamond Necklace, which is worth 55 million. Then there's the Oppenheimer Blue, which is worth 57.5 million. Then there is the pink star, 71.2 million. The peacock brooch, uh, 100 million. And what is the biggest, most valuable jewel in the world? Well, in actuality, anyone know? Someone must know. The Hope Diamond, thank you, yes. The Hope Diamond, which I got to see the other year when we were in D.C. That's where it is. The Hope Diamond weighs 45.52 carats. It's 25.60 millimeters and long, 21.78 in width, and is 12 meters deep. It's one of the largest 
jewels you'll ever find. Its estimated value is $250 million. So when you think about something beautiful and radiating and valuable, you think of jewels. Well, that's how he describes this gigantic city, like a jewel radiating from heaven. He decides here, it describes it symbolically as having 12 gates, uh, three on each side. Uh, so most cities in the ancient world actually had walls. I don't know if you know that. Major cities had walls. And the way to enter into the walls was by these gates. And these gates became actually gathering places. The elders of a town would meet at the gate to make decisions. Uh, people would set up shops. So the gates were kind of a big deal. When a group of us, like James mentioned, were in Israel, uh, we got to go through a number of these gates to go into Jerusalem. And this is the, the Jaffa Gate, kind of one of the more well-known ones. And you may recognize two or so many people that from our own congregation in that picture. There's Jeannie and there's, there's Dave Poirier entering through the, the Jaffa Gate, which is kind of a big deal. A lot of times at night, you'll have musicians playing there and, ever, and everything. Uh, it's kind of a, a, a place of celebration. Twelve gates, twelve angels stand by each of the gates. The twelve tribes are inscribed into the gates, and the twelve apostles are written on the foundation. Uh, why describe it, though? Twelve is, of course, the number, uh, one of God's numbers. It's the number of Israel. Uh, because you see here uh, that this is filled with God's people. Um, God's people through all of history. The 12 tribes, 12 patriarchs, describes pre-Christians, uh, believers. Those were part of faithful Israel for many, many centuries. Uh, at the foundation is the 12 apostles. Uh, the church is built in the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. It's a continuity of those who have trusted in God and his grace throughout all of history. Matthew Henry, the famous commentator, said, this new Jerusalem is the church of God in its new and perfect state, the church triumphant. It's God's people throughout all ages. Friends, why a city? Why picture the bride now as a, a city, a big giant city? Remember, the Bible started off in a garden just nature, right? Surrounded by plants and with just two people. <laughs> but it ends with a huge city full of people, probably billions and billions in reality. That's because, friends, we were created not just to worship God, but to fellowship with one another forever. Right in the beginning, what did he say to Adam? It is not good for man to be alone. Be fruitful and multiply, he said to the original couple. We need each other. <laughs> Even introverts, if you're an introvert here, here, we need each other. There's no one who can be okay by themselves. And all eternity is spent with one another, like a big city. I don't know if you like cities. Uh, I like cities, like Boston. Boston's probably my favorite city. I like New York City. You mentioned that, James. Actually, I've been there a few times, and I love New York City. don't like their sports teams, but I like their city. Like Montreal, that's not too far. I was surprised that you can get to Montreal in uh, less than a, you know, one day's worth of travel. Um, Jerusalem is a beautiful city. Kathmandu, where Mike and Cheryl probably flew into, is an interesting city. Haverhill really is a city. Not, we're not just a town, we're a city. Cities are filled with people. They're filled with diversity, filled with all different types of personalities. All living together. Now, we live in together in, with sinners, as sinners, which is very different, but he describes an eternal city where we live without sin and suffering. Imagine 
what that's like. Friends, heaven is going to be a glorious reunion. A glorious reunion. Uh, now, I hope what you're looking forward to most about heaven is to be with Jesus. Because <laughs> that's the best part of heaven. But that's not all it is. And you, can't, you don't need to set two good things against one another. We're also going to be united with each other. Those you know in Christ who have passed on. Parents, grandparents, siblings, friends, church members. I think of all the, the, the church members. Uh, how many, I, don't, I think I've done close to 100 funerals here. Maybe it's in the 80s. Close to 100 funerals, I would guess, here. All those in Christ will be united. You'll meet new people. New people who have believed in Jesus throughout history. Uh, I'm looking forward to meeting Paul, the apostle. He's one of my favorite people in, in history. And George Whitfield. He's my historical hero. And I wouldn't mind sitting down with Billy Graham. All right? So that's, that's, my, that's my trio there. But many others, faithful Christians, faithful missionaries, whose names will never be written in books in this world, will be gathered together forever. Every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. United with one heavenly language in a world with no end, experiencing the glory of God. And why does he give us this? Why does he give us this picture of what's to come? It's to whet our appetite. It's to call us to stand with Jesus now. Because eternal glory awaits. All this that he describes is for us who believe in him. This one thing you have to do, wait. That's it. Just wait. If your faith is in Jesus, you just have to wait. Uh, you just have to be faithful and persevere in your faith, and eventually this day will come. I don't know. I'm sure we have some perhaps here, or maybe don't believe in Jesus yet. You're still thinking through your faith. You're not sure what you believe. If that's you, I'm glad you're here. I mean, if you're, you're at a church, you're looking to find answers, that's a great, that's a great thing, and I'm really glad that you would choose to be here with us uh, this morning. Understand that uh, the calling of Scripture is pretty simple. It's to look to Jesus as Savior. It's to recognize that I can't do it on my own. Uh, my sin has cut me off from God, and all the good works and ceremonies and rituals and whatever I could try to do will never be good enough to earn my way back into forgiveness. <laughs> but the good news is that God sent his son, which is what we celebrate during this time of year in Lent. He sent his son to die in your place, in my place. He bore the burden of your sin upon himself so that through faith in Christ we could know God. We could be reconciled to him forever. He calls us to persevere in that faith. For those here who do know Christ, I just want to encourage you, end well. <laughs> end well. I was told before, I was given the advice before, the Christian faith is not about how you begin. People begin in all different ways. Some people begin with a radical conversion. You know, straight out of the whatever it may be, drugs and addictions and sexual sin, everything comes straight out of that and it's a radical conversion. And others say, you know what, I grew up in a Christian home, I can't even really remember the day that I became a Christian. I think I've been a Christian my entire life and none of that ultimately matters. The question is, do you end well trusting in Christ, the Savior and Lord? All this is meant to keep us going. The Bible gives us glimpses, it gives us visions and symbols. Why? To make us ready for what's to come. 
So friends, if you're here, you're struggling with doubt. <laughs> or maybe your struggle is with apathy. You're getting a little, your feet are falling asleep in the, your, the Christian faith. You're getting a little tired. You're not fighting for your faith anymore. Friends, be encouraged and keep up the good fight. And in the end, you will see this for yourself. I, I love, I want to end with a, just a brief illustration. Uh, I love the movie, The Gladiator. Now, just, just so you know, it's not, I can't recommend, it's a lot, of, a lot of blood. So if you're someone who is like, I don't like violence in movies, sorry, but that, that, you know, I can't necessarily recommend the movie in that sense. But Maximus is the main character. And in the beginning, Maximus is the general of the Roman armies. Um, I've got to kind of set this up a little bit. And Elysium is their view of heaven. This is the ancient Roman view of heaven, is Elysium. Okay? But as he leads his men into battle, this is his rallying cry with all of his men surrounding him as they go to war. He says this, played by Russell Crowe. He says, hold the line. Stay with me. If you find yourself alone, riding in green fields with the sun on your face, do not be troubled, for you are in Elysium, and you are already dead. <laughs> so I would just say to you, brothers and sisters in Christ, hold the line. Continue on in your faith. Fight the good fight. And if you find yourself surrounded with a new heavens and a new earth, and with a holy city full of people, of believers from all ages, don't worry. You are in heaven, and you are already dead. <laughs> the day is coming for all those in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much that your people have, have read this very passage from Revelation 21 for 2,000 years and spanning the globe, and have found in here the encouragement to keep going, and to persevere in the faith. Father, I know that there are many in this church family who are going through hard times. And as we said, pain is part of this world. Whether that's chronic ailment, whether that's mourning over a lost loved one, whether that's a feeling of betrayal or the harsh criticism of someone they know and love, or whatever it may be, remind them, Lord, that the day will come in which you will wipe away every tear and there will be no more mourning or pain or suffering. But we will dwell with you and that this is our heritage for those in Christ as sons and daughters. Keep us fo focused. Keep us faithful. Keep us fighting the good fight, we pray. In the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.